Children can go on to Children's Church. Thanks again, Stu, for the great reminders. Yes, as we come to the scriptures, we, we stand beneath the cross because we don't have any merit on our own. So Christ is the only one who gives us any kind of merit to even stand and come into the presence of God when we come to him in prayer. So as we do that, let's remember that as we pray and ask the Lord to help us during this time. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to serve you in this way. And Lord, um, we both have a responsibility. The one who speaks the truth has a responsibility to speak it accurately. But the one who listens has a responsibility to receive it and to heed it, and also to uh, weigh whether what the speaker has said squares with the truth. So, Lord, we ask this morning that we both fulfill our responsibilities properly as we come to you. I pray, Father, that uh, I might speak the truth accurately, that you would guard and guide me from speaking untruth. And that, Lord, this morning as we listen together, that we might receive the truth, but also be conscious of the fact that we have a responsibility to receive it in the proper way, but also as we leave this place to live life as you have ordained, that we will be careful to uh, work it out and live out those truths in a way that would uh, be becoming to who we are and uh, to the calling that you have given us. So, Lord, help us in this endeavor. Help us to best understand your word. May your spirit guide us, that you would lead us into all truth, and that, Father, we might uh, be obedient to what you have uh, given to us. So, Lord, guide us and direct us this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a, um, a confession to make. Last week, I misspoke. My dear friend, Stu, corrected me after the service. The Geneva Bible was not published in 1699. Published in 1599. So I was 100 years off. Thank you, Stu. Was it Stu or, no, it wasn't Stu. It wasn't you. You didn't correct me. It was Bud. I know, I know. You're both good looking and you're so good looking I can't tell you apart. Yes. Well, okay. One of you might be a smart aleck. <laughs> no, come on. Thank you, though. I appreciate you correcting me. I, I needed to be corrected. So... And I'm glad we can do that. I hope you don't feel like, Pastor Tim, you misspoke. I can't do that. Well, no, I shouldn't. So you need to correct me, okay? And I won't get mad at you for long. No, I'm just kidding. No, I won't get mad at you. All right, take your Bibles, if you will, please, and turn to Second Peter. 
And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. I've entitled my message, Don't Give Up. Uh, and the reason for that is, remember the, the, the people that Peter addressed his, this letter to. These were refugees. They had been spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And we find that reference all the way back in 1 Peter. And we know that these are twin letters because in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, in this second letter. So 2 Peter is a continuation of what 1 Peter gave us. 1 Peter's theme was how to live in a world when you are suffering. And these New Testament believers were in the midst of suffering. They were being persecuted. Um, it was an economic hardship. There was uh, social hardships. There were actual physical hardships that they were dealing with. And so Peter reminds them that, you know, they, in the midst of suffering, to have the right attitude. Now, Second Peter continues that, but he doesn't talk about suffering. He talks about what they need to be thinking about in the midst of the circumstances that they find themselves in. And so this in the chapter 1 of Second Peter, Peter reminds them that he is a servant, or if you will, a better term, and a more accurate term would be the word slave. Because in the Roman Empire, a slave was considered someone else's property. And Peter and Paul both make it a point to call themselves servants or bond servants or slaves of Jesus Christ. Those three words in English convey the same idea that we have in Greek of doulos, which is a slave, someone who belonged to somebody else and did their bidding. And so Paul and Peter remind their readers that they are slaves of Jesus Christ. They may not have been indentured servants or whatever, being owned by a physical, another human being, but they were slaves of Jesus. And using that term conveyed immediately to the Roman citizen that read these words, or a person in the first century, they understood immediately what that meant, that I am not my own, I belong to someone else. And in this case, Peter says, I belong to Jesus. And so... He was responsible to do what Christ had sent him to do, but also to go along with that and coupled with that, we find that Peter addresses them and says he's also an apostle. Now, the word apostle means sent one. <laughs> so Peter says, I'm a slave who's been sent on a mission. And let me remind you this morning that regardless of who you are, if you belong to Jesus, you're a slave who's been sent on a mission. Hence the Great Commission, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, to, to obey all those things that I've commanded you to do. So we are in the same position. Now, what is fascinating to me is that Peter, he has this standing as a slave and an apostle, but notice how he addresses them to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Notice that Peter makes it abundantly clear that his standing as an apostle does not put him above those to whom he is writing. It's not like, all right, all you minions, listen to what I have to say. No, there is no attitude of superiority with Peter. 
Peter says, I have the same faith that you have. I'm in equal standing with you. David Helm, in his commentary on the book of 2 Peter, which I found in your library, and you have it, so you should consult it, um, he says, by the term ours, I think the apostles are meant. Notice what he says. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, it's in the plural format. So Peter, I think, and I think David Helm is correct in saying that when he talks about this faith that Peter had, he had the same kind of faith that all the other apostles, but guess what? He says, you have the same faith as his readers, as his audience. So he's encouraging them in this. And so he says, David Helm says, in this exalted way then, we are told that our faith is equal to that of our Lord's earliest and closest friends and followers. While we may be living thousands of years later, our faith is in no way deficient or inferior. We have apostolic faith and nothing less. I love that. In other words, Peter didn't have something different than what you've been given. I don't have anything better or different than what you've been given. That is an encouragement because notice what Peter then goes on to say. I want you to jump down to verse 5. For this very reason, and we're going to find out what all, this, all that meant, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he goes on for that, that wonderful list, what David Helm calls the golden chain. I didn't find a better term, so I'm, I'm borrowing it from him. You know, when you find something, you don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, it's good. It is amazing, though, that Peter makes this kind of a, a, he just drops this truth at the very beginning, and then he comes, and you'll find that often in Peter, that he mentions, he'll drop a word in a sentence, and then he picks it back up later on and develops it for you. So pay attention to that as we read through and think through and work through Second Peter. Notice what he wishes for those individuals to whom he's writing. He wishes and he asks God to grant grace and peace, and that that grace and that peace might be multiplied. Now, we've already talked about, we talked about grace this morning a little bit, if you were in Sunday school. Uh, but then he says peace. And there's something interesting about the word the word combination of grace and peace, that grace is obviously that which we don't deserve, that has been granted to us. It's unmerited favor. Okay? Uh, you can think of grace as an acronym. G, grace. Never mind. Oh, my son. You ever have your mind go blank? Okay. The word G stands for God. R stands for righteousness, A stands for at, C stands for Christ, and E stands for expense. So gra grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. He provided that for us. But notice what grace produces. If you look through the scriptures, you'll find in several different places 
where when, when Paul or Peter at times talks about the grace of God, it's always coupled with the end result gives us peace. It provides us peace. It generates peace. It results in peace. So remember that. He wishes and desires that the believers that he's writing to might have grace and peace. And do you see how that would, might be beneficial for them? If they were in a difficult situation, being persecuted, going through all kinds of different suffering, physical and financial, etc., that they would need to have peace in the midst of this. It could cause turmoil. You know, when things aren't going well, when you don't know how you're going to feed your family the next day, or you don't know when your next meal's going to come from, or you don't know if you're going to be dead tomorrow after all of the things that are happening, having peace and allows you to have your head fall asleep. <laughs> and, you know, you can lay your head down, fall asleep, and you're fine. That is truly something that the world does not have. They're worried about this. They're concerned about that. I have run into more fearful people than I can count in the last few months for various reasons. They're unsure of the economic situation that our nation faces. They're unsure of whether they're going to still have a job. They're unsure of whether or not we're going to be safe. And on and on and on and on the list goes of people's fears. But when you have been given what Christ has given to us, this standing of uh, an attained of faith, of equal standing with the apostles, we can have peace. And so he desires that they have peace multiplied to them. But notice how that peace is multiplied. It might be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. It's not in some external world uh, created, man created way. It's in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I don't know how to emphasize this to you. The key to walking with Christ and to having peace in your life and being able to have confidence as you move forward is not found in how much Bible knowledge you have. Did you know that? It doesn't have anything to do with the Bible knowledge that you've acquired. Now, I know that some of us think that being able to answer all the questions correctly when, when a teacher or the pastor asks, and that, that means that we could win a Bible trivia contest. But did you know that winning a Bible trivia contest will not help you live the Christian life necessarily? Knowing stuff doesn't help you do the right thing. You must experience the goodness and grace and mercy and peace of God personally to be able to, regardless of what the circumstances are, be able to walk with Jesus and to serve him and to think correctly. Let me give you an example of that. Back in 1992, Marcia and I, were on a furlough from the country of France where we served for almost 20 years as missionaries. And we were back here in the States visiting the churches that support us. And we, were, we had just finished 
uh, seven nonstop weeks of vacation Bible school. Now, let me just give you that. That was stupid on our part. Don't ever do that. That is just dumb. Uh, but we were young. I was young, inexperienced, and stupid. Uh, and planned and organized seven weeks in a row of being in vacation Bible school. We had finished that, and we're on our way to a missions conference at the end of that last seven weeks up in the Adirondacks in New York, and we're traveling past Albany, New York, when there were the remnants of Hurricane Andrew that were coming up the Hudson Valley. And uh, we, were, we had a van. We had uh, four children in, in the van, and we were towing a dual-axle uh, camper that someone had lent us for that uh, summer. And uh, Marsha was driving, and a gust of wind about 40 miles an hour hit the side of the van and the trailer, and the trailer started to sway back and forth. Marsha tried to get the vehicle and the trailer under control. She pulled off to the uh, emergency lane, and beyond the emergency lane, there was this wonderful grassy field. And she figured, and I was in agreement, that that should be where she had. And so she did, not knowing that the grassy field held a ditch that was covered up with all the grass. So we went into the ditch. The van flipped on its nose and rolled three times. Obviously, the trailer disconnected. And after all the dust settled, we got out and were counting heads, and there was one missing. Our youngest son, Jacob. He was four and a half. And so I went back across the trail that our uh, van had uh, mowed <laughs> through the grass, and I found him. He was face down in the dirt, and long story short, ended up back at the hospital with all of us in two different hospitals. Jacob was pronounced dead on arrival at Albany Medical Center. Now, in the midst of that circumstance, this wasn't for me, this was from the Lord, I leaned against our van and I said to myself, well, our life's never going to be the same again, and it hasn't, but you know what came flooding back to my mind in those moments? Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And guess what? God gave Marcia and I peace in the midst of that. Was there great sorrow? Oh, yes. Was there a lot of sadness? Yes. Did we have to help our kids deal with the loss of a sibling? Yes. But God's peace was evident. And that didn't come from me. That didn't come from something I could generate in my own heart. My heart was in a great deal of turmoil. But God's peace reigned supreme. And God has... Over the last, uh, it's now been 31 years, uh, has given us and continues to give us opportunities to minister to people who've lost children and other loved ones. So God uses things that are difficult to produce good things in our hearts and lives. But in the midst of those things, he gives us peace. So let me encourage you that regardless of what occurs, we don't know what's down the pike. You do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I know who holds tomorrow. And that is the Lord. And he knows what I need. And he knows how to give me the strength I need for when I face those troubles. 
grace, and peace. Peter predicates all the remainder of his letter on the fact that God is the one who grants all these blessings. And that's why he can with confidence come back to his hearers, to his readers of Second Peter, and say, listen, don't forget. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Don't forget the reminder of this is true. We have the truth. Don't let the circumstances of life, don't let the troubles you face, don't let the uncertainty of the world you live in detract you from listening to what is true and of following what is true. Now notice that Peter doesn't just go on and pontificate. He makes it very clear. His divine power that is, the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice how he does that. It's by his great and very great and precious promises. Now, God has a purpose in giving us these great and precious promises. Now, obviously, where are those great and precious promises found? They are found in the Word of God. This book contains all the great and the precious promises that you and I need to listen to and heed and memorize and apply. So, if you want one takeaway from this message this morning, let me encourage you to be in God's Word every day. I know that we say, you know that little Sunday school ditty, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day. Well, that is absolute truth. That is how you're going to grow. If you wonder why your spiritual growth is stunted, why am I not progressing in my Christian life? Why can't I be like, and you point to someone who is doing that, why can't I be like them? Then maybe the answer to that is very simple, and the solution is very, very simple, and that is make time to be in God's Word every day. It's, just not, it's not just a, a simple little uh, Sunday school song that you might sing. It's, it, it's something you should live by. Are you in God's Word every day? Do you take time to read the Word of God every day? Do you take time to pray and talk to God? Because, you know, two-way conversations. You want to get to know somebody? What do you have? You have a conversation, or sometimes we call it a dialogue, you know, where you have two people talking to each other. I say something, and then they respond, and then I respond, and then they respond back, and then we continue bouncing the ball back and forth. I have a friend of mine who calls that playing tennis. And he told me, you play tennis well. I said, what do you mean, Jeff? And he says, well, you know, when I want to have a conversation with you, I say something and you, you will respond. That's having a conversation. And when you have a conversation with God, what do you do? You talk to him in prayer and he talks back to you through his word. You want to get to know God better? Read his word. That's where you discover what he's like, who he is, how he functions, how he acts, what he will do, what he won't do. 
Let me encourage you to do that. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. But he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, hasn't he? Isn't that interesting? He's given to us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, if you go back, um, if you go down um, into verse 7, or verse 6, rather, he says, and knowledge was self-control. Self-control was steadfastness. And what does he couple with steadfastness? Steadfastness with godliness. You see what I mean by Peter drops these words as he explains things to us, and then all of a sudden he says, now that word that I mentioned, see the word faith and the word godliness? I'm going to put them in a chain that actually makes sense as it develops. He grants these things to us so that we will learn how to walk with Jesus. Now, Peter hasn't even gotten to the main point necessarily of his epistle. We'll discover that next week. He makes it very clear what his purpose in writing this epistle is. But you see, he has to build this foundation so that we can understand why what he's going to say is so important and so vital and needs to be remembered because those are going to be repetitious words we're going to find next week. Remind, remember, recall. What needs to be remembered? What needs to be recalled? What needs to be, why do we need to be reminded? Well, these truths, the very great and precious promises which God has set for us, these are things that we need to remember. Now notice, we talked about knowledge in the very first part of uh, our first message. Notice what he says in verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to knowledge, to, to, excuse me, to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And we know, Peter, if you go back to 1 Peter, you'll know who called us to his glory and excellence. It was none other than Jesus Christ. So through his death, he provided us life and ability to live for him. Now notice, what is the purpose for having granted us uh, these things that pertain to life and godliness, to which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises? Why did he do that? Look at the end of verse 4. Sometimes in English we kind of over gloss over these things so that he says through them what well all these great and precious promises obviously you may become partakers of the divine nature why did god give us all these great and precious promises so that we would partake of his divine nature now, some people have taken that to mean that we'll become gods. That is not what he's referring to. He's referring to the same thing that Paul references in Romans chapter 8. You know what verse 28 says? All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, why do all things work together for good? If you look at verse 29, it's so that we will be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
That is what Peter is referring to here. Being partakers of the divine nature. We're going to be like Jesus. And that's why the situations, the circumstances, the trials, the problems, the obstacles that you and I face on a daily basis, their purpose is to make us more like Jesus. Peter says it this way, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, how do we know that? Well, it's because we escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, pay attention to those last two words, sinful desire. If you go to chapter 2, you will also see that in verse 3, is it verse 3? Or is it? Ah, it's mentioned in chapter 3, and I forgot to underline it. But the same words are used again. Sinful desire. If you look at chapter 2, you'll see he's talking about false prophets and people that don't tell the truth and they want to help people uh, be diverted from following the truth. He says they follow their own sinful desire. Peter is weaving a tapestry together to help us understand how to live the Christian life in the midst of a wicked world. That was the problem the first century believers faced as they were scattered around the Roman Empire as believers. Some were maybe two or three, and sometimes there were even just single individuals that got isolated from everybody else that they had been part of. And they had to work out and live in light of these difficulties who they were in Christ. So Peter writes them so that when they come across these words, they are encouraged to continue to follow Christ. These are the things we need to remember. That's why he gets then to verse 5. And verses 5 through 9 is the gospel process. God's provided all these things for us in verses 3 and 4. Now he's going to show us how that works. What is the process that God uses to help us to live for Christ in the world we live in? Well, it's not all up to God. He is the one who accomplishes all these things, but we have a responsibility in all that. So often the... I, I, I hear young believers say to me, well, now that Jesus saved me, I, I can rest. No, you can't. You have work to do. Stop slouching, you lazy bum. Get up. Read your Bible every day. Pray. At least do that. But then when you start reading your Bible, begin to see, oh, I have a job to do. I am responsible. Notice, first of all, this list that he gives us. For this very reason, because we've been given these precious promises, he says, for this reason, make every effort. Does that sound like lay back and drink a pina colada on the sandy beach under an umbrella? No, it doesn't. It means you have work to do. What is that work? Well, he says, first of all, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You know what a supplement is, right? Some of us take those. 
in the form of pills. I have a daughter who's a nurse, so she suggests very strongly that I take certain supplements. What are supplements? They're things that you add to your diet. Like you should eat your green beans. Or peas. Or asparagus. Ew. Yes, broccoli even is good for you. I never had been introduced to asparagus until we came back from France and Marcia introduced me to asparagus. It was always kind of, ooh, what's that funny green stem stock thing? You know where I got, I, I finally ran into asparagus and realized it was something that was beneficial to eat? It was through veggie tails. You know, you have Bob the tomato and anyway. Supplements, we use them all the time. Well, he says, supplement the faith that you have been given. Now, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, what have we been given? That's not of ourselves, and so we can't boast about it. Anybody know? For by grace through faith, right. God is the one who gives us faith to believe. We don't generate that on our own. That's something God gives us. And so Peter says, take that faith that you've been given and add to it. In other words, get busy and build on what God has given you. And he has this whole list. And we could just take an entire sermon and go through this, but we can't do that today. But I want to point out some things. Virtue. How, did you use the word virtue any time this week in a sentence when you spoke to someone? How many people use the word virtue? Nah, didn't think so. It's not a common word. But you know what it means? It actually means moral excellence. And what that really is talking about is living a life that is exemplary and that someone could say, oh, that's what a Christian looks like. Or if you will, that's what godliness looks like. Now, he's going to use the word godliness a little further down in the, the, uh, in the list. But the idea behind virtue is that you are a morally good person. In other words, you're going to demonstrate by your character, by your actions, that you don't steal, that you don't use foul language, that you are an honest and upright person, that you have integrity. When you speak something, you do what you say you're going to do. That's what's referenced there in the word virtue. And then virtue with knowledge. Well, obviously knowledge, because what is this epistle about? Getting to know God. And so he says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. And then the next one is self-control. See, when you have the proper knowledge, what will be the outcome in your life by your actions? You will have self-control. That means learning how to not do things you really would like to do, but you know aren't beneficial for either you or the person to whom you're working with. Self-control. That means you don't eat what you shouldn't eat. That means you don't watch what you shouldn't watch. That means you don't do with your body what others perhaps may do and think is, hey, that's no problem. Well, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. What's the next one? Steadfastness. That means 
You're somebody that can be depended upon. (laughs) Or you're someone that cannot easily be moved. People come along and say, well, don't you think this, and you know, you could actually change your position from here. No, nope, I'm not going to change. I'm going to stay there. Now, there is something to be said about easily being entreated. That'll come back in James chapter 4, or rather chapter 3, where he says that when you're trying to, to display godly wisdom, you're, you're someone that is willing to listen to someone else's idea. That doesn't mean you're going to change what you think or the way you're going to act, but you're not like, no, sorry, my way or the highway, not listening to anybody else, talk to the hand, that kind of thing. He says you're willing to listen. But in this case, steadfastness has to do with your character. It is not easily swayed and moved to another position. And then steadfastness is coupled with godliness. So all these things build up to what does it look like to be godly? Because he says he has given us and granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So it's not like God holds us to a standard and says, ha, 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 have fun reaching that. No, God says, here's the standard, and I've given you everything you need to make it happen. But you're going to have to work at making it happen. You're going to have to put effort into it. You're going to have to exercise self-control. Did you know that is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way? There's some interesting ties between what Peter has to say in this passage of Scripture and Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 5. And then notice what you do. You take godliness and you couple that with brotherly affection. Now, this is the word Philadelphia. There's a town in Pennsylvania that's called Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. Now, what word phileo is a Greek term for love. It's another one of the five Greek terms for love. This one has to do with... Really, it's sometimes hard for people to understand this. But did you know as a Christian you should love people? I, I was in a... I was in a restaurant, and I saw this guy. He had a black shirt on. It was bright red uh, writing on his shirt, and it says, I used to like people, but people ruined it. Did you know that we are supposed to be lover of people as Christians? That's supposed to be something that characterizes someone who is godly, someone who is a Christ follower. You're supposed to like people. How many of you don't like people? Now, be honest. See, there's some that are... Well, get over yourself. You're supposed to like people. That's something that comes from being in God's Word. And there's a lot of us that don't like people. I love people. Like my wife thinks I like people too much. I'm always the last one to leave church at our church. But guess what? That's one of the characteristics. You love, you love people. See, how are we going to reach people with the gospel if we don't like people? It's kind of a, eh, it doesn't work well, does it? No, I don't like people. Well, then how are you going to reach out and 
and draw someone to Jesus and have an opportunity to speak to them about Jesus. That'd be a little hard. Then I guess we're going to have to break our bad habits of not liking people and work on that. So this is my plug for Wednesday night. We're studying the book Sent. Come on Wednesday night and we'll talk about how to do that better. And then the last one is the classic word for love that we have in the New Testament. It's agape. You know the one that first is based on 1 Corinthians 13? For God so loved the world. John 3, 16, same word. That's God love. That is the... That, that doesn't mean we can't love like that because he's asked us to love one another in the same way. And especially, he's asked husbands, you thought I'd not slip in a thing on Father's Day. Well, here's where you go. Husbands, we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Same word. We're also supposed to love our wives in a brotherly fashion too. Oh, I love you, dear, but I don't like you. Have you ever said that? Yeah, there's sometimes our spouses can be difficult. Let's just be honest. I know Bud can be a pain in the neck. But you know what? She still loves him, right? You better say yes. No. <laughs> you know, my children sometimes. They're not always likable, but I still love them. Yeah, we need to work hard at this whole idea of liking other people and loving them the way Christ loved them. That's a display of what it means to be godly. Now, quickly, he says, in verses um, 8 and 9, there are two things he says about these. Now, you'll notice he mentions these qualities. That's what he's referring to. You know that list we just went through? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, etc. He says those are the qualities. They are yours. If these qualities are yours and are increasing. Oh, you mean I'm supposed to be getting better at those? It's not like, okay, I, I did that and we're good. No, you're going to spend a lifetime improving on those abilities and those qualities. And he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you. Oh, here we go. This is what the effect of these qualities are. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. You ever felt like you were working and you were doing something and you were spinning your wheels and you weren't getting anywhere? That's the idea behind ineffective. There's nothing being produced out of this. Or, he says, unfruitful. Now, this is a more strong term. It's the word meaning sterile, as in unable to reproduce. <laughs> now, what are we supposed to be doing as believers? Let's rewind to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And what does he say? He says, go make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. So what are we supposed to be doing as believers? 
We're supposed to be reproducing ourselves. Remember John chapter 15, where he says in verse 5, if without me you can do nothing. He says, I am the vine, or rather, you are the vine, I am the vine dresser. And then he talks about how vines work. And you've got uh, branches that trail along the ground and don't produce any fruit. And so he says, cut those off, get rid of them. But he says, what you do is you continue to prune the vine until it produces fruit. And then he wants you to produce much fruit. How does God help us produce fruit? You see that list? It starts with, with, with faith and ends with love. That's what he's talking about. And he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you grow in grace and peace? and have it multiplied to you. It's by doing these things. Supplement your faith with virtue, etc. Then he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted or myopic, that's the exact Greek word that's used here. I am slightly myopic. Most of you are just nice and fuzzy out there. I take these corrective lenses and I put them on and voila, you are nice, clear, and crisp, and I know who you are. You're not just kind of a fuzzy blob with color. He says that when we don't produce this kind of fruit in our lives and work at virtue and knowledge and steadfastness, etc., you know what happens? We become myopic. That means we don't see the world clearly. And he says it can be so bad that you actually become blind. And how does that happen? Look at verse 9. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins... When we forget and we don't rehearse the gospel in our hearts and lives on a regular basis, we forget where we came from and where we're going and the people that we've been sent to influence through our lives, our godly behavior. Peter says, please don't forget those things. Those are necessary. You need to remember that. So as a result... He comes up with this. He says, therefore, brothers. Now, remember, when you see a therefore in a passage, it kind of is a summary. I've been teaching you all these things. What are you going to do with them? So here we have some practical considerations. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice, there it goes again, these qualities, you will never fall. Now, that's a fascinating statement because why did he have to include you will never fall? Did you ever think of Peter's experience? What happened when Jesus was on trial? 
They accused him of being a Galilean. They accused him of being a follower of Jesus. And what did he do with those accusations? He denied them, didn't he? He goes, nah, I'm not one of them. You don't know what you're talking about. And then he even used an oath. He cursed to express his disdain for what the girl was saying to him. And Jesus looked at him. Peter realizes, uh-oh, Jesus had told the truth when he prophesied, no, you're going to deny me three times before the, the rooster crows. And Peter realized that Jesus had told the truth. But what did he forget? He forgot who he was. Go back to verse uh, 9. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, Peter knew exactly what it meant to fall. And he says, I don't want you guys to do that. I don't want you to fall. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In other words, don't forget who you are. We could just send you back to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and remember, have Paul remind you of all the things that we are in Christ. Go back to Romans chapter 8 and review the whole chapter. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height nor depth nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, talk about confidence. But that confidence in chapter 8 follows on the heels of chapter 7. And you know what happens in chapter 7? Paul says, I have this problem. I keep doing the things I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things I should do. I'm miserable. But he doesn't give up. He says, but I know who I am in Christ. You see, you, so, you struggle, I struggle with sin and failure to obey Christ, and that's normal. But what do you do with it? That's what needs to be abnormal. Most people, I failed, I screwed up one last time. This is like the hundredth time that I committed the same sin again and again. And I've asked, what do I do with that? Do I say, okay, that's it, I'm done, I'm finished with the Christian life, forget it, I'm just going to go. We see people act like that many times, don't we? What is the biblical response to that defeat, that difficulty, that obstacle? You stumbled and fell again. What do we do? Well, you get back up and you remind yourself, I am Christ's child. I belong to Jesus. I don't have to live like this. I know there's a little voice in the back of my head that says, ah, oh, you're just a loser. Well, no, I'm not. I am the child of God. I belong, I've been redeemed. I have been made a child of God. That's reminding yourself of the gospel. And that's how we become someone who doesn't lack these qualities 
and is nearsighted so that I'm blind. I don't forget who I am, but I remember and I confirm my calling and my election. I have been chosen by God. I did not, I did not make myself a child of God. God made me his own. I belong to him. This is a work of his grace. I, yes, I will fall. Yes, I can get back up because of what Christ has done in me and will do through me. And then, in verse 11, he says, For in this way, in other words, reminding yourself of who you are, confirming your calling and election, and by remembering these qualities and practicing them and progressing in my ability to do better at these, in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a promise of not falling and then there is the confidence in our final destination. In other words, if you belong to Jesus and you continue to do what the God's word tells you to do, you continue to obey, you continue to confirm your calling, you're going to make it. Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. No, you can't be on your own. In Christ, you can be sure because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. It depends on his work on the cross. It doesn't depend on your ability to believe or your ability to obey. It depends on his ability to keep you. That's one of my favorite doctrines is the perseverance of the saints. You will make it if you are one of Christ's children. How do I know if I'm one of his children? Keep in the word every day. Discipline yourself. Read God's word. Pray every day. But I still sin. That's not good. But guess what? We all sin. What do we do with that? Do we just sit and wallow in it and go, oh, I'm just a mess. I can't do this. Or do you say, because of Christ, I will try again. And you know what? The more we work at this, the better we get at it. And you know what? Before you know it, Jesus says, time to come home and you're still struggling to do what God told you to do and be obedient to him, but you made it to the end. thing is, is we give up so soon. And Peter's epistle is about, don't give up. Hang in there. Keep being faithful. Do what God's word says. And leave the results with God. My desire for you today is that as you consider walking with Jesus, that your confidence not be in yourself. Go back, review the gospel. Be confident in Jesus. He will never fail you. Be confident in the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Don't forget. Don't give up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the truth that you have unfolded to us this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would use it uh, in our lives, in my life, to cause me to be more like Jesus. Lord, we know we fail. That's a reality of life. We're not perfect. But we do know that you are faithful and that you are true and that you will never forsake us. You've promised us that. 
I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. So, Lord, help us to live in light of those truths. Help us to work at adding to our faith. Help us not to just be lazy Christians that just kind of hang around and wait for something good to happen. Help us work hard at what you have given us to work hard at. You know, we can't produce the results. Only you can. But we can do what you have called us to do. Help us to be faithful at those things. Help us to be diligent at adding to those things that we know that you've called us to add to. Help us to remember the gospel. Help us not to forget what you have done for us. Help us to always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and not look at the circumstances around us. We know how that ended for Peter. Help us to be those that keep our eyes firmly fixed on you so that we will not fall and that will be reserved for us a place with you for eternity. Help us to share with others the same things we have learned, the same things we are learning. Help us to struggle together to walk in a way that's worthy of what you've called us to do. We ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.